Investing in space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The private space industry is booming. From commercial rocket launch companies to mega satellite constellations, there's a lot driving business in this sector. And that's despite uncertainty in the banking system and record inflation. We'll hear from one investor about the booming sector and how space may be the next trillion dollar industry. Then from Megacon Orlando, our conversation about the future of moon science. We'll hear our panel discussion with UCF physicists that was taped at the show earlier this month at the Orange County Convention Center. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. There's a lot happening in the private space industry. For more than a decade, Chad Anderson has been a part of that boom as the founder and managing partner of Space Capital, a venture capital firm investing in the space economy. His new book, The Space Economy, Capitalize on the Greatest Business Opportunity of Our Lifetime, is out today. And he joins us now to talk about this growing industry. Chad, welcome back to the program. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So... Your book is The Space Economy, Capitalize on the Greatest Business Opportunity of Our Lifetime. We'll, we'll, we'll chat a bit about the book in a moment, but while I hear, have you here, I, I do want to chat a bit about the economy and how, uh, how the space industry fits into that. We know that there's, there's quite a bit of, of uncertainty when it comes to our economy with issues in the banking system, rising inflation. Um, how is the space industry weathering this storm? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's certain is as the economy... Um uh, is, uh, facing numerous challenges. The space technologies are increasingly an important and critical playing an increasingly critical role in the global economy. Um, we view space technologies as the invisible backbone that, that already today powers, um, uh, the world's largest, uh, industries. If you think about the timing element in GPS and how that runs our financial institutions that allows for global commerce um, and geospatial capabilities um, powering our agriculture industries and insurance industries. Uh, and obviously, you know, there's there's um, uh, an increasing convergence with satellite communication, um, providing connectivity um, to remote areas. Um, you know, and we're seeing a lot more sort of satellite to direct to, to handset and a lot of um, uh, mobile operators connecting with um, satellite providers to be able to provide that connectivity. So in the last year was uh, the markets were in pretty tough shape um, and there was a lot of geopolitical conflict um, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine was actually a showcase of the growing capabilities of commercial space companies. The satellite communications and Starlinks, uh, SpaceX's Starlink satellites kept the Ukrainians connected, and geospatial intelligence and Earth imaging satellites uh, gave us some ground truth of what was actually happening on the ground. You know, in, in Q2 last year, when the market was sort of at its steepest decline, the National Reconnaissance Office, one of the big five U.S. intelligence agencies, made their largest ever satellite imagery purchase. And we're seeing Earth imaging companies and geospatial companies uh, reporting record revenues. Uh, you know, for the last 12 months, they've been reporting record revenues. And, you know, in our experience, we've seen that as the world becomes more dynamic and more uncertain, enterprises and governments want more information, not less. 
so they can determine what to do about it and develop strategies around that. So again, it's, it's, if you think about the space economy as just rockets and satellite hardware, you get a very sort of limited view of the opportunity here. It's really the data that's coming off of orbital assets that is powering our economy and enabling us to navigate uh, tough economic waters. That's good news to hear uh, that there's all of these different forces that are that are helping keep um, the space industry moving forward during this time. You you write in the book that humanity has operated in space for decades, uh, but it's only recently become a category for investment. Um, let's take a step back. When did this change happen, and what does that mean for the private space company? moving forward. Yeah, I mean, everyone is familiar with um, the achievements that humanity has has made in in space and exploration, right? I mean, from the uh, Apollo missions and landing on the moon, the first satellites being launched, the space race and the Cold War. Uh, obviously, you know, the Apollo missions, like I mentioned, and the International Space Station. So we have been operating in space for decades, but it has really been a limited market. You know, it's been something that is reserved only for, you know, the best and brightest of us, you know, the chosen few astronauts and explorers. And it's really been sort of, you know, off limits to most everyone else. And that was the the way in which, you know, the defense contractors that reigned at the time really tried to perpetuate this, this idea that, it's rocket science. It's very difficult, you know, um, leave it to us, you know, we're the experts, right? And um, prior to SpaceX, there was really, um, you know, there was a handful of defense contractors on one side and the government on the other. So very, very limited market. Um, there were very high barriers to entry. Launch was the first sort of uh, line of defense. Um, and uh, SpaceX was able to successfully remove those barriers to entry. So in 2009, they launched their first customer. You know, in 2012, they went to the space station for the first time. In 2015, they started landing their their rockets and um, uh, bringing the cost down, you know, even further. But what they did was, you know, as most of your listeners will know, is that they 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 brought the cost of accessing orbit way down, and they also published their pricing. It brought transparency to the to a market for the first time and what this allowed for was companies then to come up with ideas to experiment with small satellite form factors um, and other types of space you know orbital infrastructure and they could now you know they could size up um the, the cost benefit and they could see how much it was going to cost them to get to orbit um and they could go out and raise venture capital based on that and so um, that's where we started to see, you know, and this is this is not new. This is um, something we've seen in countless other industries throughout history um, that, you know, that there is a market, but it's limited. High barriers to entry are keeping uh, new entrants out and keeping innovation low. And um, like we saw at SpaceX, you know, there's something structural changed. Um, the barriers to entry were removed and we saw this this um, a rush of, of entrepreneurship and innovation you know, sort of flood in. And so uh, over the last 10 years, we've now, you know, gone from very limited private market activity to now a quarter of a trillion dollars invested into 1700 space companies um, uh, during that period. And so uh, really, really 
um, obvious, you know, where, uh, where things changed, um, and when those barriers were removed and, um, what we do with, you know, what I did through interviews and, and, and working with all the great people that, that contributed to this book, um, what we tried to do was, uh, talk to the people who were around then and before then and say, um, you know, this is such a massive change. Where did this all start, right? This is not the work of one single individual. Um, this is, uh, not, you know, luck. It's not something that just happened, you know, out of the blue, right? Like when, when did this all happen? And sort of, we traced it back to, uh, the 1984 state of the union, uh, address by, by Ronald Reagan. And, you know, if you listened to, to that speech today, it would sound, you know, it would sound very timely, uh, if, if he was giving that speech today, um, that really got, uh, the ball rolling and got people, um, uh, thinking about space in terms of, of commerce and its impact on the economy. Um, and that it was a series of events that happened over the next couple of, you know, couple few decades. Um, that got us to where we are today, um, and, and, um, are achieving that vision that, that we thought up in 84. You mentioned that, um, you know, there, there was a lot of things that happened, but, you know, SpaceX's entrance into the industry was really kind of a, a, a shift in, in the way people viewed the, the, private space industry and were able to invest in the private space industry and participate in the private space industry with with the Falcon 9 and its pricing. Um, SpaceX is about to launch um, an orbital test flight of Starship, which promises to kind of do some of those same things to, to change the industry. Um, as, as we're, you know, kind of days or weeks away from this flight, what are what is on your mind when it comes to Starship and, and how this may change the industry? Yeah, I mean, it, we spend a significant amount of time in the book, you know, thinking about this and 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 thinking about and uh, about what this could mean. And you know, the way that that um, that I'm looking at this opportunity is, if you look back, you know, around 2009 when um, when SpaceX opened up the market for the first time, brought the cost of orbit, you know, crashing down, um, and enabled startups to come into this for the first time. You see all of the amazing activity and innovation that's happened since then, right? And then um, it took a few years for for that to get going, uh, for people to recognize that something structural had changed and to take advantage of that. Um, and then in 2015, things really started to take off, uh, right? With when they started to land their boosters and, and reuse and, and relaunch them, um, when Google put a billion dollars into SpaceX, you know, um, with the idea of Starlink. And all these new opportunities and ideas were starting to pop up. Um, here we are with um, uh, with Starship on the precipice of coming online, which is going to have as large of an impact, if not more so, on the space economy going forward. And what's so interesting about that is that you know we're just sort of getting into this, right? We're seeing all of these. Uh, uh, ideas now start to get funded and people start to build, um, new concepts and new infrastructure to, um, uh, to take advantage of this increased, uh, orbital access, but, um, but they are, uh, building solutions for a Falcon, um, nine launch paradigm, 
you know, with Starship expected to come on soon, we're entering a new phase of infrastructure development. This vehicle is so large and is um, relatively so incredibly cost-effective. Uh, if they can do what what they're hoping it can do, um, it's going to completely change the game. I'll give you a few examples. We've got um, hundreds of billions of dollars have been invested into space station, you know, private space station concepts to take over after the International Space Station uh, is retired. And um, these are, you know, many of these are, are being built in the same way that the International Space Station was. You know, they're big CapEx projects. You build the things on the ground and then you need a vehicle to launch them up and be assembled in space. Um do you really need a, a permanent orbital uh, station, right? Um, do you need a, a, a permanent destination in orbit? Or could a Starship, because it's, you know, um, because of its size and its cost, could that be, um, could that as a station that goes into orbit when you need it and comes back when you don't? You could do all of that for the cost of one seat to, you know, the, the International Space Station today. The book is called The Space Economy, Capitalize on the Greatest Business Opportunity of Our Lifetime. We've been speaking with the book's author, Chad Anderson. Chad, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Brendan. Chad Anderson is also founder and managing partner of Space Capital, a venture capital firm investing in the space economy. His book is out today. Just ahead, a look at the upcoming moon missions. Our panel discussion from the halls of Megacon Orlando, Are We There Yet?, is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. Among the cosplayers, comic book artists, and Funko Pop shops, two of our show regulars join me in one of the panel rooms at Megacon Orlando, a massive convention celebrating nerd culture, art, sci-fi, anime, and science. Here's our conversation from earlier this month from the Megacon Orlando Convention about the future of lunar exploration. UCF physicist Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell join the conversation. Josh begins the conversation recapping the Artemis One mission. Thinking about first launch of a rocket uh, and having it really be pretty much flawless is a huge milestone. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot of delays. They were looking at a launch in September, they're having all these leaks, with liquid hydrogen and the valves, and it's a very, very tricky system. And this is a huge rocket. It ended up being a very successful launch, and it's also the most powerful rocket to launch successfully into space ever. Mm -hmm. um, and so about 20% more thrust at liftoff, I think, than the Saturn V rockets, the Apollo mission. So just like the fact that pretty much everything worked is huge. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was it was phenomenal, and, and every step of the way, I think we were waiting for we were just waiting for something to go wrong because <laughs> I don't know. There's so many things that could go wrong, right? And also, I guess I'm just a pessimist. But um, uh, it was it was phenomenal to see it launch. It was it was really amazing to just see the mission just continue to go along, and you didn't hear a lot about, as you mentioned, like things going wrong. Um, things functioned, it did all the demonstrations that they wanted to do for this really key first step in the Artemis program. Um, and it was just so exciting to see. Also, having been on the, the podcast and in a number of forums over the years talking about upcoming Artemis, it's just really exciting to finally have that behind us and be able to talk about the next steps now. Mm -hmm. Was anybody in the audience, did they watch it live in person on the Space Coast? It was pretty wild, wasn't it? Like night turned to day, it was, it was pretty phenomenal. So. So it was cool. There, nothing went wrong. I mean, there were little things that went wrong, but for the most part, it was successful. Uh, why was this mission important to the the overall Artemis plan? Because there was no crew on this one, right? No. We should say there's no crew on this one. Yeah. So Artemis One was an uncrewed uh, vehicle, and we were actually just talking on the way here about. It still stresses me out that they uh, they didn't even test the life support system on the capsule in this one because they were like, we don't have people on there, and I'm like, yeah, but. It would still have been good to test it. Anyway, they can do a lot of testing Before on you put people in yeah. there <laughs> um, but, on the but next I mean, mission. It, You'd still get in it, right? Uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> I would. I would. Um, I, I, this mission was so crucial in so many respects, right? So if, if, if it had gone wrong or even if a lot, it had gone pretty well but not that well, right, like, it would have put a big damper on a lot of the next steps. Um, and the Artemis program is a huge program. We'll talk a little bit more about this, but it's a huge program. And so just having this first milestone underway and demonstrating the vehicle, all of the vehicle components is so important to being able to actually continue and go on to the next steps. Mm. The Artemis mission is a, a human mission to the moon is the next step. This is putting the next footprints on the moon from, from US astronauts, um, but there's very important science that's happening during this chapter of exploration. Why is it so important to people like you, planetary scientists, for us to go back to the moon this way? So there's a lot of robotic exploration that happens in planetary science. Um, and so this means sending amazing, phenomenal spacecraft to Mars, right, to do really cool science and exploration. Um, but having uh, this long-term plan to have humans on the surface of the moon, ooh, that's a good, that's a good image. Um, ooh, this is part of the far side, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not the dark side. No, the far side. The far side. It's very bright, as you can see. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, having a long-term sustained presence on the moon will enable so much more science and technology um, that just we're not able to do with little one-off missions. And I think one thing that's important to remember is the moon is weird. It is weird that the Earth has a very large natural satellite based on our understanding of how planets form and how solar systems evolve. Mercury doesn't have any moons, Venus doesn't have any moons, Mars has two little tiny moons that are captured asteroids. So it's unusual that a habitable world like the Earth has a large moon, and that moon may have played a critical role in enabling the development and evolution of life on Earth. So it's not just like, oh, there's this thing, let's go check it out. That is very much a part of our sort of planetary identity mm -hmm. and the and understanding you know, the story of our place in the solar system. And so understanding the moon is a, is a very, very important scientific question. Mm -hmm. Is it not like a, like a cosmic fly trap where it's just grabbed stuff that has 
flown by our planet that can kind of tell us the history of what's happened to us? It's certainly an interesting witness plate. Yeah, Witness plate. That's yeah. a much better analogy than <laughs> right. sticky flat. So sticky it's the same, same distance from the sun as the Earth, and it has no atmosphere. So the Earth's atmosphere filters out most of the small impactors that come in. And so it does, yes, have this record that preserves, and it's one of the ways we know very precisely the age of the planets and we were able to figure out, thanks to the Apollo mission in large part, even though that was a space race mission, you know, that wasn't really motivated by science. We tricked them into doing some science. They though. did. <laughs> there was an amazing scientific return from the Apollo missions. All those uh, lunar rocks that were brought back enabled us to piece together a history that showed that ultimately the moon, why do we have this weird moon? A giant impact occurred four and a half billion years ago that... Uh, blasted off a planet's worth of material from the Earth, and then it reformed into this sort of double planet mm. system. And correct me if I'm wrong, the Apollo astronauts are also helping us learn that the moon is moving away from us and will, will probably fly away not well, in our lifetime, right? But it's, it's never going to fly away. So Space 1999 fans out there, <laughs> anybody as old as me, I'm dating myself. But uh, So the moon, the moon isn't going to fly away, but it is drifting away. So they put lunar laser range reflectors on the moon, and that's a natural process due to tidal evolution between the moon and the earth. Uh, it's making the earth rotate a little bit slower, but not. It's, uh, we're not going to get that 25th hour that I so desperately <laughs> okay, want yes. as, soon as, I, <laughs> yeah, as soon as I would like to have And that it. won't happen in our lifetime, right? We'll, no, we'll no, no, no. Yeah, okay. It's moving away like an inch per mm, some number of years. Okay. I, can, I can't remember Nothing the exact. Nothing to worry about. Yeah, no. Definitely not anything to worry about. Probably. Okay. I know you worry there's, about a lot of these. A lot. Yeah, there's far more things for you to there's worry no about. There's no black holes yes. to worry about or anything like and that. I learned that yeah. from you guys talking to me on my podcast, so thanks for always giving me an existential crisis. Something to worry yes. about. We learned about a nearby black hole recently. Oh, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about it tomorrow. We will, yes. <laughs> um, one of the things that you scientists have learned about the moon that you does scientists. not scare the crap out of me is that there is water on the moon, right? Tell yeah. us a bit about how, how we know this what type of water is on the moon and why this is so important. Yeah, so we know that there's water on the moon because we have spacecraft that have been orbiting the moon for a long time. So there's a spacecraft called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's been orbiting the moon for over a decade now. Um, and we also have other spacecraft previously that have orbited the moon. Um, and we, I don't know, probably a decade-ish ago, we the smack. Yeah, we smashed a um, spacecraft called Elcross into the south pole of the moon. Um, and when that Science happened, is so cool. it is. You did that on purpose, like, we right? We did. Oh, absolutely. It was sort of like the DART mission that we just had, where we ran something into a spacecraft into an asteroid. This time, we smashed something into the south pole of the moon, um, and it kicked up a big cloud of dust and debris. And in that cloud of dust and debris, there was a lot of weird chemicals, actually, but that included some water. Our modeling shows us that there was some water. But we did that because we had evidence from things like neutron detectors and other spectroscopy um, that looked at the rocks and the other areas on the moon, it tells us we think that there is water ice, um, especially in the polar regions of the moon, where we have these weird areas with that rare, very rarely see sunlight. So the moon um, is in an orbit such that uh, the, it's, it's pretty straight up and down. So it rotates on its axis, um, but it doesn't tilt very much. So the poles, basically, there are some areas in the poles that are basically always in the dark, that are down in craters. Um, and so they almost, for, for millennia, have not seen sunlight. Um, and uh, so that they're very, very, very cold. And so those are areas where we can trap water ice um, and have it sort of build up over time. Then that's coming from 
like impacts of comets. Mm-hmm. You're talking about you know mm-hmm. catching all the stuff that's zipping around out there, and so those comets would evaporate or burn up small objects, burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, but they smack into the moon, and those water molecules hop around until they land in these permanently hmm. shadowed regions. We also think maybe we capture some of the particles, there's hydrogen and oxygen and other things from the sun, from the solar wind that gets captured on the surface and potentially transferred into hydrogen and oxygen molecules that we call water. Mm-hmm. So no, no lakes or anything. I was going like to say, what does this look like? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, a lake on the moon. No. Right. What is it? Yeah. So these are trapped water molecules. They could be in a, a few different formats. So you could have deposits of ice, I think, uh, mixed in with the lunar regolith in the south polar region. But you're probably, most of it is going to be in what are called clathrates, which are these molecular cages that have water molecules trapped inside. Yeah, so we don't actually, I mean, one of the answers is we don't actually know exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, because all of our modeling tells us that there is water molecules there, but there's a lot of different um, ways that you can sort of have that, as you just mentioned. And so, like, there's no sort of one answer that we have right now, which is why we need to go there. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, and having it there, why is that also important? Is there a way that we could use this as astronauts? astronauts? get thirsty. Astronauts get thirsty, yes. That's a <laughs> um, so do rocket engines. So do yeah, rocket so do engines, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so water is an interesting molecule um, in that we c- it's very important for us, obviously, for life um, and to be able to survive, but also it can be used for things like uh, fuel, right, rocket fuel. Um, and so we use it for what we call in-situ resource utilization, ISRU, which is the idea that you can live off the land. So you go somewhere and you can mine resources like water, for instance, and use it to make rocket fuel or make water um, and use that to make a more sustainable presence on the moon, but potentially also then have depots where you could fuel other ships and go past the moon to Mars, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you need oxygen to burn your fuel, and uh, it's heavy. It's eight times heavier than hydrogen, which is the lightest fuel that you've got. And so not having to carry that oxygen up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of blows my mind because I'm not an engineer, but I'm amazed at what can be done. You shovel giant amounts of lunar soil into a uh, machine Reactor. that you bring up there and extract hydrogen and oxygen. You fill up hydrogen and oxygen tanks. You know, it's and a then you're just like station, right? yeah. yep. <laughs> a huge advantage for everything, all future space exploration, uh, going to Mars and beyond. It's just amazing. Because the hardest part for most of those things is getting off of the Earth because it's a huge, huge gravity well. So mm-hmm. it's just really hard. That's why we have to build such big rockets. It's because most of that fuel is expended just getting it oh, like up to the space station, right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. still need a lot of fuel. So That was UCF's Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell. They host their own podcast, Walk About the Galaxy. They taped an episode at the convention, too, and invited me on as a guest. You can find that episode, which is already published, and more on their website, walkaboutthegalaxy.com, or get their podcast wherever you get this podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.